Would you remain standing with me and let's confess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. I don't want to let the moment pass to uh, acknowledge um, the homegoing of uh, one who was dear to us here at LifePoint Church. Uh, Fran Volkart went to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on Tuesday. Um, we loved Fran, and Fran loved us well. As I have reflected this week on Fran and her life among us, it, it occurred to me that Fran embodied everything that uh, we have prioritized here at LifePoint. And uh, she was a part of the, the very first group of people, the group that we called the launch team that started LifePoint Church. She was there for every project, every outreach, um, excited, enthusiastic, encouraging, uh, she loved to uh, greet at the doors of our church, uh, and even in the recent years when she didn't have the strength to stand, uh, she would sit there by the door because she loved all of you and uh, just took joy in welcoming you to this place. And uh, we will miss Fran greatly. Please encourage the Volkart family. And here's what I want to say. Please don't encourage them not to grieve. Don't, don't ask them to get over it or expect them to get over it. Uh, grieving is a, a necessary process. It's, it's, uh, it's part of the healing process. And uh, I'm not sure we ever fully get over those we have lost, those who have gone on before us. Uh, we continue to grieve their absence. But, but here's what I know. Uh, we haven't lost Fran. We know right where she is. She's she's in the presence of Jesus, and I also know that she um, she wouldn't come back as much as she loved all of you. <laughs> uh, I don't think she would say, "Oh, I want to go back." I think she's uh, reveling now with a new body and uh, in in the presence of of her Savior. And uh, so we, as we grieve, we also rejoice with her. Um, but be, be encouraging of the Volkart family. Don't ask them to get over it. Uh, if anything, we should, uh, we should wish that people would grieve fully and deeply and, uh, and work through all of uh, what the loss means uh, in their lives and, and in our lives as well. Well, today's message will be the ninth in this series. We've arrived at long last at the uh, third portion of the Apostles' Creed that's headlined by the declaration, I believe in the Holy Spirit, which means that we're on the home stretch. Um, 
I sincerely hope that these messages, uh, these teachings have been of help to you, uh, not only in your biblical understanding, but perhaps in your spiritual growth as well. Uh, I've thought long and hard about how to approach this message about the Holy Spirit for two primary reasons. First, because there's just so very much to say. Um, I once wrote a 13-week curriculum on this topic for adult learners, and even then felt like I'd only begun to scratch the surface. So so how to take such a, a vast and important topic and distill it down into about, I don't know, two hours? You got two hours? Um, yeah, bring it in pizza, sure. Why don't you just go place that order right now? Second, I'm, I'm mindful that, that many, if not most of us, have not been exposed to a full and balanced teaching on the, the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So that what we do possess in terms of knowledge is piecemeal and, uh, and often imbalanced, sometimes fundamentally false. Um, and, and, and this may be the first time that you've heard um, a broader teaching that's biblical and provides an overarching exposure to this essential doctrine. Uh, I had, in fact, begun to despair of finding actually a useful approach for the time we have until I read the introductory chapter, actually the second chapter, rather, in a book by Michael Green entitled appropriately, I Believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, and uh, actually one of the very best books on the doctrine of the Spirit that I've, that I've ever read. It's very readable, and I commend it to you. Michael Green, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm in debt to him for three of the five headings on your sermon notes form, which I'm going to give you now. Um, those headings are, Who is the Holy Spirit, first of all? Secondly, Act 1, On from Creation, in which we'll take a glance at the activity of the Holy Spirit as it's revealed to us in the Old Testament. Uh, Act 2, On from Bethlehem, in which we will see something of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, Act 3, On from Pentecost, in which we'll survey the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and mission of the church ever so briefly, and then act four on from the new birth, uh, in which we'll examine the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of, of the individual believer. As you can see, what I'm going to give you is an overview, uh, and I'm going to be moving quickly this morning, so please remind me to breathe between sentences. Uh, it's going to be like that. Um, Someone said at uh, one time, uh, your, your teaching is like a fire hose. You get more on you than in you. Um, I hope that won't be true today. I hope that you'll get some in you anyway. I want to encourage you to take notes. Um, if you need an extra sheet of paper, I actually asked Kathy Pruitt, and she graciously complied to provide some extra sheets at the back. I had a gentleman come up last Sunday and say, uh, I filled all the spaces on the program, all, all, four, <laughs> all, all four sides, and uh, I needed more space, so uh, that's, a, that's a, a provision for those of you who take many, many notes. Um, I'm also quite sure that you're going to have questions afterward, and uh, I want you to know that I'm always uh, happy uh, to respond to them following the service. I'm actually very happy when you ask, um, and so... Uh, Happy to talk with you after the service. You want to email me during the week or call me during the week. 
I'm happy to talk with you and answer whatever questions you have. Also, uh, want to say that you should feel the freedom and the encouragement to bring questions that are that that rise in your mind today to your life group, and uh, and discuss those questions there. Uh, and if you're not a part of a life group yet, I want to encourage you to consider that. We have a number of life groups that are meeting, and uh, they would be happy to welcome you. So here, here's what I'd like you to do because we're going to be moving fast. At the beginning of each section, I just want you to loudly inhale. <laughs> Ready? <gasps> okay, here we go. <coughs> Shouldn't have done that. First of all, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? And the first and really most important thing we need to say in answer to that question is that the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. The Holy Spirit is not a ghost, at least in the sense in which our present culture thinks of a ghost. Now, that is a phantom or a specter or a poltergeist. Previous generations did, however, refer to him as the Holy Ghost because that's the way the King James Version rendered the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, and uh, they used it that way in those generations. The Holy Spirit, secondly, is not a vague impersonal force. Uh, Christians may be heard to say, the Lord be with you, but never in a serious way. May the force be with you. Uh, Third, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune Godhead. Many people find this diagram to be helpful in their thinking about the, the mystery of the Trinity. And so you see there that the Father is not the Son, nor is the Father the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor is the Son the Spirit. And the Spirit is neither the Son nor the Father, but all three of those persons are God. The Holy Spirit is, by the way, (laughs) it's a great diagram. It's very helpful, but um, the mystery of the Trinity is beyond diagramming. And it's it's really beyond uh, our human understanding. The um, fully God, the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. Next, the Holy Spirit is not merely a mode of God. Not merely a mode of God. Uh, Some have tried to kind of resolve the the mystery of the three-in-one Godhead by suggesting that Rather than existing in three distinct but co-equal persons, the one God instead simply functions in three different modes. On one occasion, he acts in the mode of God the Father, at another in the mode of God the Son, and another in the mode of God the Holy Spirit. And as water can exist as liquid vapor or ice, they would say that God exists as one but functions in three separate modes. And, and that view creates just a host of theological dilemmas. Uh, and it's and it's really inconsistent with what the Bible clearly teaches. Three persons in three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, one God. And then the Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is never in Scripture referred to as it, but always as he. Uh, today it's become popular to share your personal pronouns his are he, him, and his. doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is male in the human sense, but that he is a person, not an it. 
As a distinct person, Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit manifests the essential characteristics of personality. He possesses, for example, an intellect. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13, we read this, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So he possesses an intellect. He also possesses a will. In Acts 16, 6-7, Paul and company are on their way to Philippi. Um, various opportunities arise that they can see for ministry along the way. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The Spirit has a will. And third, he experiences emotions. For example, Paul warned the Ephesians against grieving or bringing sorrow to the Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 29, warns against outraging the Spirit of God by our disobedient and rebellious behavior. So who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He is the third person of the triune Godhead. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. He is a person possessing intellect, will, and emotions. Next, I want you to understand that because he is eternal God, he was present and active at the creation and was active in the lives of the Old Testament saints. So here's Act 1, on from creation. This is where you inhale. That was pretty quiet. You guys breathing? Act 1, on from creation. Spirit, first of all, in creation. We read in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit is present and active at the creation. The phrase Spirit of God in Hebrew is Ruach Adonai. Ruach Adonai. Ruach means spirit. But depending on the context, it can also be translated breath or wind. So now go with me to Psalm 33, verse 6, where we read, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Here in Psalm 33, 6, it seems like the psalmist is, is probably looking up into the heavens, and he's celebrating the, the creative and artistic power of God. And the witness of Scripture is that God spoke all of creation into existence, creating everything out of nothing. I happen to be among those silly enough to believe that that is true. Eight times in Genesis 1, over a period of six days, we read the three-word phrase, and God said. So at Psalm 33, 6, what we see is an example of what is uh, a Hebrew literary device called a parallelism in which there are two lines that say essentially the same thing 
with the second line expanding on or clarifying the first. Word here is the spoken word. Breath in the second line corresponds to word in the first. And here also is the Hebrew word ruach or spirit. So that as God speaks the heavens, as he speaks creation into being, uh, his breath, his spirit goes forth and accomplishes that which he speaks. We see something reminiscent and very significant in John chapter 20 when appearing to the apostles after the resurrection, he breathes on them, it says. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, then let's think about the Spirit and people in the Old Testament. When we speak about the way the Holy Spirit interacts with people um, in the Old Testament era, I want you to remember three words. Selective, external, and temporary. Selective, external, and temporary. Today, in the New Testament church, we use words like baptism and indwelling and filling, and we recognize that those blessings apply in the New Testament age to every believer in Jesus. So we can easily make the mistake of just kind of approaching Scripture on the presumption that it's always been this way. And yet when we examine the way the Spirit functioned in the lives of individuals in the Old Testament under the Old covenant, we come to the, re- to the realization that, that, he, that the Spirit wasn't given to everyone, that He didn't take up residence permanently in their lives. Instead, the Holy Spirit was given to select individuals as a temporary enablement or empowerment to either communicate a word from God, to fulfill a particular role according to God's will, or to perform an action on behalf of God. For example, we frequently read of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon. That's an important phrase. You might want to write that down, coming upon an individual and enabling them to prophesy. That is, to speak a word from God, whether it's to an individual or to a group of people. And an example of that is in Second Chronicles 19 and 20, where we read about a great army, a coalition army of multiple nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, coming up to make war against King Jehoshaphat of Judah. And the odds were overwhelming. Uh, Both the king and the people were terrified at the prospect of this attack. But the Spirit of the Lord, it says, came upon, there it is, came upon a man named Jehaziel, with a word from God to King Jehoshaphat that God would fight the battle for him, that the the kingdom of Judah simply needed to stand and see the salvation of the Lord, and they did. And the Spirit was given to Jehaziel in that moment as a temporary endowment of the Spirit to speak a word of prophecy, a word from God to his people. We also see that the Spirit was given to specific warriors as a temporary empowerment to prevail in battle. And we see this frequently in the book of Judges as the Spirit of God comes upon men like Othniel and Gideon and Samson to make war on the enemies of Israel. Spirit was also given to specific kings and judges as a temporary anointing to enable them for their roles of ruling over God's people. 
You may recall that in Psalm 51, following King David's grievous sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then killing her husband to cover it up, we read David confessing his sin and pleading with God not to remove the Holy Spirit from him uh, as God had done with his predecessor, Saul. The Spirit, and we shouldn't fail to make mention here of the Spirit's role in the inspiration of Scripture. The Spirit inspires Scripture. Speaking of the Old Testament Scriptures, because the New Testament Scriptures hadn't been written yet, Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out. There's that breath. There's that wind. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's why we refer to the inspiration of the Spirit in relation to Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Peter wrote something similar in 2 Peter 1, 20-21, and, and I want that, this won't appear on your screen, but there's there's the idea there of... Uh, the writers of Scripture basically raising their sails. He uses a nautical term. He says that the that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Um, and there's a sense that they raised their spiritual sails and they, they allowed the wind of the Spirit to fill them so that when they wrote, uh, what they wrote came from God and not from themselves. But again, as always in the Old Testament age, the Spirit of God came upon them, came upon a select few as a temporary enablement, not a permanent one, and only externally, not internally, not to indwell them, but to be simply with them. And that's the central reason why the promise of the new covenant was so radical and so wonderful. And here's the text of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts." And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The prophet Ezekiel um, chimed in on this as well. God speaking through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. To the new covenant, would be for all of God's people, not just a select few. The the law would no longer be written on stone tablets or parchment scrolls only, but now on their hearts. Their sins would be forgiven, remembered no more, never leveraged against them again. He would give them new hearts and put His Spirit within them as a permanent presence. 
Well, what could setting his law within us and writing it on our hearts mean except an inside job? Israel couldn't keep God's law, neither can we. And so he promises a new covenant and takes responsibility for keeping both his part and ours. He takes responsibility for both sides of the covenant. Sins are forgiven, never again to be leveraged against us, a reconciled relationship. And instead of an external law, the permanent presence and power of the Holy Spirit within us, writing his law on our hearts. Not a select few, but everyone. Uh, Not temporary, but an abiding presence. And that was the promise, but it couldn't be realized yet. So before moving on to Act 2, let's consider what the Old Testament has to say about the Spirit and the promised Messiah. Because one of the distinctive features of Messiah is that the Spirit of God would rest upon him as a permanent presence. Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being the father of King David, Messiah being called son of David. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 62, 1-2, to The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this, of course, as you may recall, is the scripture that Jesus read in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth as he inaugurated his public ministry. And so that brings us to Act 2 on from Bethlehem. Thank you. You're be- you sound more alive there. That's good. In Act 2, God comes to make himself personally known. John wrote of Jesus that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. In the incarnation of God, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a 400-year drought of the presence and activity of the Spirit of God in Israel comes to an end. For that period of time, there had been no prophets in Israel. For 400 years, Judaism was a non-profit entity. And then suddenly came John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah. And then right after John came Jesus, the Son of God. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah as he appeared, as, or rather as he served in the temple and said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled, notice, with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just 
to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Not only had there been no prophets in Israel, no seeming spiritual activity in Israel, there had been no angels appearing in Israel. And then the angel Gabriel appeared to a virgin in Nazareth whose name was Mary and announces that she will become the mother of Messiah. And when she asked how it would be since she was a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come. There's this phrase again, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So notice that phrase, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's the same concept we see over and over again in the Old Testament. Another expression of the Holy Spirit's enablement of God's chosen vessel to accomplish a specific purpose. Uh, Some have attempted to attach sexual connotations to that phrase, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. They do that to their shame and, and really reveal their ignorance. Without the enablement of God the Spirit, there is no incarnation of God the Son. The Holy Spirit is the causative agent in the incarnation. As John carried out his ministry as forerunner, some speculated that he might in fact be the Messiah, but he responded this way, I baptize you with water, that he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew records that when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's one of those few occasions where, uh, in the Scriptures where we see all three persons of the triune Godhead um, revealing themselves. When John, when Jesus rather was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, you may recall that the gospel writers tell us that it was the Spirit that led him there. And then Luke records that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all, through all the surrounding country. Luke 4 verse 14. And he went from there then directly to his hometown of Nazareth, and it is on that occasion that he read from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he had finished reading, he said to all who were there, today... Uh, To their astonishment, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, in his hometown, among people who had known him his entire life, he made the bold claim that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, of all people, that he is the one about whom the prophet was writing. And they tried to kill him for it, because here's little Josh, little Joshy, Joe and Mary's boy, hometown boy, claiming to be Messiah, and maybe even God himself. During the years of his ministry, the Spirit, now hear this, the Spirit is localized in the person of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? That Jesus, God's Son, took on human flesh. He took on a human body. He was the bearer of the Spirit. 
A body can be in one place at one time, right? One place at one time. Can't be everywhere. And so Jesus is the unique bearer of the Spirit of God. He and He alone during the years of His ministry. And as such, then He also becomes the unique giver of the Spirit. In John fourteen sixteen, Jesus promises His disciples that the Holy Spirit will be sent to them from God the Father at His request. In verse 26, it's the Father sending the Spirit in Jesus' name. And in John 16, 7, it is Jesus Himself sending the Spirit. So here's what I want you to hear. Jesus then stamps the Spirit forever with His own character. Look with me at John 14, verses 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. Now listen, you know Him, He says, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Helper is the Greek word parakletos or one who comes alongside to help. And when Jesus says that the Father will give them another helper, That word another means one of the same kind, or in effect, another like me. And he tells them that they already know him. Now, they haven't received the Spirit yet. But he says, you know him. And then he adds, for he dwells with you. Present tense. He dwells with you. Is he speaking of himself? Is he speaking of the Spirit? What do you think? He says, future tense, he will be in you. Again, is he speaking of himself or the Spirit? And then in verse verse 18, rather, he adds, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And again, is Jesus identifying himself so radically with the Spirit that the coming of the Spirit will be the coming of Jesus himself? In verse 20, he adds, In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You know, we we use a little expression, um, often with children, when we talk about asking Jesus into their hearts. And what we're actually describing is the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in an individual life. But we refer to it as asking Jesus to come into our hearts. Why? Because the Spirit of God is stamped with the character, the personality of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is clothed in the personality of Jesus. The Spirit is marked with the character of Jesus so that later in Acts 16, Paul actually refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. Following his death and resurrection, Jesus again promised his disciples the Spirit 
saying that they should stay in the city of Jerusalem until they're clothed with power from on high, and as the result, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And of course, that promise was fulfilled several days after Jesus' ascension into heaven to the right hand of the Father on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, And then that brings us rather to Act, Act 3, on from Pentecost and the work of the Spirit in the life and the mission of the church. You ready? All right. In John sixteen seven, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Well, what advantage is he talking about? Remember that that during the days of his earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit is localized in the person of Jesus. But now after his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out and universalizes the presence of Jesus in the heart and life of every believer. Because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, he can live today in you. Isn't that good news? It is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus said, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. The disciples received that promised power to be witnesses, and the mission of the church was launched. In fact, on that day in Jerusalem, Peter preached the gospel. 3,000 people believed in Jesus and were baptized and added to the church. And the Spirit's still providing that power for the mission of the church today, convicting the world of sin, drawing individuals to Jesus. The mission goes on until Jesus comes. And the Spirit is building up the church, equipping believers with spiritual gifts uh, for service and mission. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul tells us exactly what a spiritual gift is. It's to each To each is given, he writes, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And uh, sometimes we can we can think, well, the, the the exercise of my gifts is all about me. No, the the exercise, the genuine exercise of spiritual gifts, is a manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit is present. The Spirit is active in you. The Spirit is is active through you. It's a manifestation of the spiritual uh, of the Spirit. So whatever else spiritual gifts are, they are this. They are the manifestation of the Spirit, and they're given for one express purpose, which is the common good of the church uh, as a fellowship, as a body, and the good of every member of the church, every believer in Jesus, as well as the advancement of the gospel. Finally, Act 4, on from new birth. The work of the Spirit in and through the life of the believer. And I just want to give you several statements here Uh, that will help you understand uh, some of the ways that the Spirit works in you. Hopefully I've captured the highlights. First of all, the Spirit regenerates you. Spirit regenerates you. When, When you trusted in Jesus, you experienced what Jesus called a new birth. It's referred to in a variety of ways in Scripture, but on every occasion, it's a a radical transformation. If any man be in Christ, Paul wrote, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus said 
Truly, truly, I say to you. And by the way, that truly, truly is listen up, pay attention, because I'm going to tell you something that you can take to the bank that will always be true. And it's powerful truth. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, again, truly, truly, I say to you, is not stuttering. He's saying something very important. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. To be born of water refers to physical birth. To be born of the Spirit is to experience a spiritual rebirth. And that regeneration, that transformation is the exclusive work of the Spirit of God. Next, the Spirit baptizes and indwells you. When you transferred your trust to Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Him, when you believed in Him, you were not only born again, but you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And some people want to teach that the baptism with the Spirit is an experience that a believer receives subsequent to their salvation. We'll also tell you that you can be a Christian, but the baptism of the Spirit takes you to another level. And I'm here to say that the Bible never, ever teaches that. There are no classes or castes of Christians. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for in one Spirit, one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. When you trusted in Christ, the Spirit took up permanent residence in your life. As you continue to walk with Him, He continually fills you with His Spirit. Now maybe you have experienced something that you were called, were told was the baptism of the Spirit. But it's the wrong label. Whatever that experience was, it's part of the continuous filling of the Holy Spirit. It may be part of His gifting of you but it is not the baptism. The baptism takes place, the Bible says, when we trust in Christ. Next, the Spirit sanctifies you. Sanctifies you. Uh, And that word, it means He makes you holy. In the New Testament, the sanctification of the Spirit has two basic meanings. The first is is that God sets you apart as His very own, gives you an identifying mark as His child. The word that that the New Testament uses for that identifying mark is a seal. Now, sometimes when, when uh, mostly women I've noticed, but uh, when, a, when they send a letter, they'll, they'll put a wax seal and they'll stamp it. Maybe it's a monogram, maybe it's an image, but they'll, but they'll put that stamp, that identifying stamp, personalizing stamp on that seal. That's, that's part of what Uh, this idea of sealing is. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So so the, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is the mark. It's the seal. It's his monogram on you. It's his, it's his mark of possession. It's his brand. 
that you belong to him, that you are his child. And so your eternal inheritance as his child in heaven is guaranteed. You can think of it this way, that the Holy Spirit is is given to you in a manner similar to an engagement ring. You're engaged. You're not yet married. The wedding is certain it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time until Jesus the bridegroom comes and takes you home as his bride. The second meaning of sanctification in the New Testament is that the Spirit... By the way, let me let me just back up. When we think about the seal of the Holy Spirit as the mark of God's ownership in your life, as the heavens look on, as, as, as those in the spiritual realm look on and see you and see on you the seal of the Holy Spirit, from the from the perspective of the heavenlies, they, they know they're looking at a child of God. The human mark of the disciple is love, right? By this all men will know that you're my disciples. Jesus said that you love one another. The human ex, uh, experiential mark is, is uh, an observable, tangible love between believers. But from the heavenlies, the mark of God's ownership is the seal, the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. The second meaning of sanctification in the New Testament is that the Spirit is at work in your life to make you more and more like Jesus. It's a lifelong process, but it's the Holy Spirit that does that work. Paul employed the metaphor of fruit bearing to describe that character transformation in his letter to the Galatian believers where he wrote the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So that because the Spirit is stamped with the character of Christ, His active presence within us produces Christ's character in us from the inside out. Next, the Spirit teaches you. He's our teacher. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The primary means by which the Spirit teaches us, or the primary tool, the primary instrument, the primary vehicle by which the Spirit teaches us are the Scriptures which he himself has inspired. But the Bible says that God has especially gifted some in the church to be teachers, to carry out a teaching function. Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Finally, the Spirit equips you to serve others. The Spirit equips you to serve others. And beyond progressively producing the character of Christ in your life, the Spirit then equips you with with specific supernatural enablements for ministry, again, that the Apostle Paul called spiritual gifts, that manifestation of the Spirit. Uh, Gifts, as opposed to talents, are supernatural. Talents are natural. 
gifts are supernatural because they are the the means by which the the way by which God works uniquely through you. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul provides a detailed teaching on what spiritual gifts are all about. And let's let 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 stand for this. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts. There's a whole range of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit, he says, is the source of them all. The Spirit gives them, He distributes them as He wills. There are different kinds of service. And by this, I think he's, he means uh, ways of using those gifts, ways of investing those gifts, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways. There's different outworkings uh, by which the Spirit moves through the, the exercise of our giftedness, it accomplishes different things, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. See, when you trusted in Christ and you received the new birth, the Holy Spirit endowed you with at least one spiritual gift. You may be gifted to provide leadership in the church or to teach the Bible to children or youth or adults. You may be gifted as an encourager or an administrator. You may have an enablement to discern truth from falsehood or to speak in other tongues or to share the gospel in ways that are especially effective in leading others to personal faith in Christ. There are varieties of spiritual gifts. Those are just a few examples. But whatever yours is, God expects you to put it to use in the church or through the church. And the exercise of your giftedness is one of the ways that he grows you, one of the ways that he matures you. Finally, we have this promise, God, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Isn't that good news? I don't always have the desire, do you? pretty sure I I rarely have the power. So it's got to come from somewhere else. And God is gracious to give us, work in us, both the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. There's a person that God is creating you to be in Christ. And He has things that He intends for you to do. And the desire and the power all come, all of it comes from Him. As I often say, let's not miss our moment. Let's not miss becoming the person that God wants each of us to become and let's not miss out on doing the things that He intends for us to do. And let's keep growing in His Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Words cannot express adequately the greatness of the gift and all that it means and all the ways that uh, it impacts our life in you. From the drawing to the convicting to the faith, to the believing, to the baptizing, the sealing, the gifting, all of it, Lord. It's all from you. And so we give thanks for the greatness of who you are and the greatness of your wisdom in the ways that you relate to us. We love you. Teach us to love you better. 
Amen.